You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Uh, hello, welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld, and today I'm speaking with the great Jean Villapique. Uh, Jean, thank you for being here to talk. Thank you for having me, Louis. It's a real pleasure. Uh, Jean is an actor and writer and improviser based currently in Los Angeles, where she performs at iOS on occasion and UCBLA. Jean is also one of the original members of the Magnet Theater, one of the first teachers that we had uh, in the early days. Uh, and Jean was my level two teacher. It's just really nice to see you and get to talk to you. <laughs> you do, you do. Um, so you were in town and you did Bummers last night with uh, Tammy Sagar and uh, Melanie Hoops and Rachel Hamilton. Yeah. Can you talk about Bummers? I missed it. Sure. Last night. I've seen I'll tell it in the you past. the whole show. Please. It's a Let's quick hour. It. Okay, cool. <laughs> Uh, so we started doing this, uh, I don't remember, I'm the worst. Actually, Mel- Melanie, uh, we were emailing a couple months ago, and Melanie was like, do you guys remember when we first had this conversation outside of the Victory Cafe in Brooklyn, which was right next to where Melanie and Ed were living, um, and when I moved out here from Chicago, I lived with them in this, they had this great brownstone, and I was in the top floor, and there, there was a cafe like three doors down, and it was a little neighborhood hub, and it was called the Victory, and so I guess that's where we had our first conversation um, about the show. And I think we were all kind of in a in a bummed out place or not feeling um, like we were, you know, I was going to say using our voices, but like not feeling uh-huh. like, you know, when your light is shining, you're like n- not in your, I don't know how to say that without sounding ooky, but not feeling great creatively. Uh-huh. And so we were like, what if we just had a show where we wrote about that, you know, let's do a little storytelling show. Um just being true to that feeling instead of having to be funny or clever or something like that. And um, I wonder if that one, I think I wrote a piece for that one about having lost my wallet on the subway. And I don't know, I think it it went well. And we also kind of choreographed a dance for it, which has never happened again. I think we all had a lot of extra time at the time. (laughs) So at the beginning there was this musical piece and we all like had a a movement that that signified, like I guess I had maybe a reaching out for where my, where my wallet was, or I don't know what I did. I'm not a dancer, but um, and since then we've gotten together every year or so. Um, and Tammy was in the second show and has been in every show since then. And so we each write about a ten to fifteen minute piece. Um, and sometimes they're personal stories, like mine have always been. Um, I know the first show we did, Rachel Hamilton did this really cool piece where she was on the phone ordering um, something from a catalog and just the conversation alone revealed so much about where she was or that character. I don't know that it was exactly her um, in that place, just kind of what you need and consuming or, you know, how comfortable you are talking to strangers. And Melanie, our, this last show that was last night, Melanie Hoops did this amazing piece where she wrote a story and then had people in the audience. I'm sorry if you're going to see this. Actually, should I not blow it? I'm not going to say too much about it, but people in the audience participated. Cool. So it was not a firsthand story. And it was amazing. People were, it was just a, an incredibly engaging way to be entertained. People were part of the show and non performers. Um, were juggling fire. Not really, not really. But uh, they were reading parts of her piece, and it was very, very powerful. So go see that and find out what the rest of the 
material is. I don't want to build the whole thing, but it's great. Do you guys have like a game plan for the show worked out or, or there's a theme in common for everybody and then you go off your separate ways, create your material and then surprise each other when you come together? Yeah, that's exactly the second part of what you said is it. So we have a theme and it's pretty much, I feel like in the improv way of like the theme is shoe. Okay, great shoe. Or so this theme was running, um, I think Melanie said that word was in her mind, so everyone was like, that's great. And then we just all work on our pieces separately, which I think is very helpful because if we did talk about them, I know I would be influenced, like, well, I'm going to do something different than that, or mine's not as good, or Mm -hmm. all those kind of voices would come in. So we just kind of do our own thing and then come together and say, like, I feel like mine's an opener, or I feel like mine's a closer, I maybe should go in the middle. And then we do these pieces. So we actually, especially now that I live in California and come visit when I do the show, it's like an amazing way to catch up with friends where if I was with you, Lewis, I'd just be like, oh, wow. So you're talking about like building this shed from the ground up. I didn't know you did that. And like, I, I we're not catching up as friends. I'm watching you perform and catch up in that way. And it's really cool. And I just love I, I don't do as, so many shows where I love the people. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are dear, dear friends of mine. So I just like cannot get enough of drinking them in their faces and they're so brilliantly talented anyway i'm I'm also i've had very little sleep i'm still living in it (laughs) do i sound crazy uh uh no you don't sound crazy Uh, it there's a couple things about that that I, i i really dig um the idea of having like an annual tradition where you get together with your friends uh um but replace just basic catch up with in a way, like a much more intimate exposure to each other, you know, like you, you see the best of each other because you're performing and doing what you do really well. But it's like, what a beautiful way to, it, it, that seems to kind of like cement friendship in my mind in a very special, meaningful way where you're crafting your experience to share with each other over the last year or crafting kind of where you are as a person over that last year and then coming together to build this the show is almost like this kind of like uh, uh, group art piece that is like the group mind of the friends, you know, to see how you've grown and changed or whatever. Yeah, and definitely things resonate. Like there was there were some words in common with all of the pieces. Or I remember the piece I wrote was talking about my body, and I was like, oh, my body is this thing that was kind of like a toy or instrument that didn't come with instructions. That's always a constant source of surprises. And then I believe Rachel's, or I can't remember who said, so I have a terrible memory, but they were like, this body didn't come with instructions or something. It was just like, ah, wow, we, there are th- like threads that tie them all together um, just by chance. Yeah. And uh, uh, what you said made me think what's, uh, why I like catching up this way is because it's pretty rare when you're talking with people who aren't crazy narcissists. That, you know, if I ask you a question, I don't usually listen for 15 minutes. Right. Like, tell me a story and tell me all of it. Right. So it's it's a cool way to really hear someone I think everybody should have these shows. <laughs> Christmas time, I think families should have a family show. Everyone gets 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is really cool because if we're, like, catching up, I, I have a hard time. I, I, basically, if you're not directly in front of my face, our, our relationship is severed. Uh, I'm not good at, I don't, I don't maintain, I don't call people. I'm not good at emailing people. Um, so I've lost a lot of friends along the way just because I'm, I'm very inconsiderate, you know, if we're not in the immediate vicinity Uh, with each um, other. But the mm -hmm. flip side is if we're back in immediate proximity, uh, we're a hundred percent back on as long as you're not pissed off at me for not talking to you for three years where where we were. Okay. You feel like we're where we were. I'm, I'm still mad. 
we can work it out after the <laughs> podcast. I just so much has changed. I don't. I, anyway, the, yeah. the, the point is like yes. catching up is always this really weird thing, and a lot of times, even with good friends, for me, it can feel kind of shallow in a way. And, and even so, the phrase "catch up" is like. It, it feels like, tell me 10 things Quick. that are happening. Or even sometimes when people are like, what's going on with you? I feel like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't know how I feel right now. And yeah. I can't, sometimes I can't remember what I did yesterday. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not that comfortable at kind of checklist conversation stuff. Me neither. Um, and I also feel like, oh, another thing you said made me think about phone calls. And I forget how pre-cell phones, or it reminded me that pre-cell phones, you could really overlap on landlines. Like you could talk and both laugh and catch up, but there's something about talking on a cell phone where it's like, oh, it, it you said, say that again. Mm-hmm. And it's so disruptive to the flow of a conversation, especially with laughter or like, mm, or making sounds that are supporting a conversation. So I feel like cell phone conversations are so abrupt and it's not a great way to catch up. And then emails are what they are. Yeah, it's just kind of a very shallow way of reconnecting with people. So it's a really exciting idea to me of as you're coming back into town to reconnect with your friends, you have to take some time to really think about what's on your mind these days and craft it. And, and like, I, I find a lot of times I don't know what the hell I'm thinking about anything until I'm in the middle of saying it. I don't, you know, it, it, it's yeah. hard for me to decide beforehand. This is a topic that I've been thinking about. Now I'll express it. It's in the act of expressing something that I kind of realize what I think. Yeah. So having to like kind of look inside a little bit and, and, and think about this theme that you're given, it just seems like a really wonderful way to like genuinely, truly share yourself with your friends. And, and I don't know. It's, yeah. And it you're giving so yourself cool. the space of like, how do I feel? How do yeah. I feel? Instead of like, I'll just kind of wing it. Yeah. I, I used to, when I lived here, I can't believe it was only for two years, but Tammy Sager was living in uh, Los Angeles, and we did this thing called uh, timed writing that is uh, based on an exercise, or it is an exercise from Natalie Goldberg's book called Writing Down the Bones. And um, it's just, I believe it's called free writing, so you give yourself 10 minutes and you just take a topic and write, and you don't stop um, writing at all. So even if you can't think of what to say, or write like blah, 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 or I can't think of anything, fuck everything, whatever comes Mm -hmm. up tends to be curse words when I do it um, and we were both working on shows or I was writing a solo show and so was she and then we ended up anyway um, but writing every day at that point I was like I do know how I feel about oatmeal traffic po- like I, I had taken a little time every day to do that um, and I don't do that anymore mm-hmm. um, uh, and it really has affected the how I I don't feel like I'm as in touch or prepared for answers and maybe that has a helpful thing. If, I don't know. Time writings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to uh, uh, go back for a sec. So mm-hmm. catching up with Melanie, you and Melanie go back a ways and mm-hmm. Melanie's husband, Ed Herbstman, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you guys went to college together. Is that right? Yep. And you um, in the same improv troupe? Yep. Uh, it was called The Meow Show at Northwestern University. And I think I met Ed, uh, oh, I have a terrible memory. Yeah. We either did a show freshman year called Company of Wayward Saints that was about a Commedia dell'arte troupe or we met at the audition for the Meow Show sophomore year. Mm-hmm. So I did it freshman year with um, many upperclassmen and then sophomore year uh, a lot of the people I did it with for the rest of the journey were there. So I remember the, anyway, I remember the scene I did with Ed in the audition. We were like divorced parents watching our kid 
at a soccer game or something like that. And it's such a cool experience. I remember watching um, Dave Rosowski and Tara Copeland meet for the first time when we were doing this show called Tiny Spectacular at the mm-hmm. Magnet. And they were like, hi, how are you? How do you do? Um, we're going to do the show. We warmed up. And they did a scene together. It was like they didn't know anything about one another and had this beautiful scene because they have all the skills and tools and um, are really open to being playful with someone. Like, hi, I'm just going to take great risks and know that you will take care of me. And it was a, I remember that scene very vividly too. I think he had, uh, uh, like she was, um, uh, he had abducted her. She was like a child, but she was this kind of like powerful, mm-hmm. kind of sort of sinister. Do you remember I, I, this? I remember this too, yeah. It was a really great scene. Yeah. And it was, I was just like, this is mind blowing. But I felt the same way. Like Ed is such a great and talented guy. And it was like, I'm just going to play like this improv with this person. I was like, oh, this is an awesome way to meet somebody because you get a real window into somebody's soul improvising with them. Like I'm engaged or I'm not, or mm-hmm. I'm arrogant or bossy or super giving, or it's a really cool way to meet someone anyway. Yeah. yeah it, it, um, it's almost like you get to like skip the first six months of a relationship when you dive into improvise with somebody, you cut through all the get to know each other stuff and you cut through all the layers of, uh, uh, um, like gatekeepers that we put up for each other and, and the like little tiny tests that you have to pass to let someone a little bit closer to, you know, to your, yeah, to and a your... lot of that stuff is inhibitive too. It's just like, uh, I work at this and I do this, or this is what I think I want to say to people or how I want to present myself, but you really can't bullshit a lot when you improvise. Yeah. It's pretty clear. So you're pretty, even though you're playing a character or this or that, like your true nature comes out and it's kind of a, kind of sink or swim like we're going to be friends or we're not going to be friends yeah. and you don't have to make polite conversation and that polite conversation anyway like if I'm presenting this bullshit idea of myself and then I make bullshit friends that way eventually a year later ten years later it's going to be like oh this I don't like you and you don't like me or totally. you know we don't play well together I find when I am like visiting family or meeting new people or knowing that I'm going to have to meet new people or going to like a reunion or something my brain just automatically starts like organizing facts about myself. I start kind of like crafting my biography and it fucking sucks. And, and cause first of mm-hmm. all, my biography is super boring. My biography sucks. Um, but it, it, once my brain starts doing that, I'm kind of like on the defense of the entire rest of the time I'm with these people. It almost feels like I'm just working to maintain this biography and keep it interesting. So I love when you get to improvise that you cut through that crap and, and it's more of like, the living, breathing person is sharing a mind with this other living, breathing person, and that's it. You know, like yeah, I love the, these... the facts don't matter. The biography doesn't matter. Yeah, and I love that you said sharing a mind because you're playing together, but it's it's like uh, the two the product of your playing together is this scene. So you're both supporting the scene. So you're both like. If it was a sculpture, you would just see people rapid fire, like making this piece of art together, which would be a really cool thing to see two artists do collaboratively. But I think I forget that that scene is its own uh, uh, element to the friendship or that the way people relate like that. I remember reading Rich Tellerico had an exercise in one of his classes where he brought in a gigantic flip pad and a marker and he had every single person in the class take turns. You get up and you have to, you make one unbroken line. It can be a squiggle or a circle, whatever it is. Um, but one unbroken line and then you give the marker to the next person and they make the next unbroken line and you keep on doing it until you've created a work of art together one line at a time that just belongs to the collective entity of the class I think it was from his his Tao of improv class. That's cool. Isn't that a great way to think yes. about how 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 that happens? It, it you, it's this third thing that you're both a part of. I like those tangible metaphors too. I like to 
because improv is so elusive and once you do the scene it goes away and it's hard to hold on to what it is so any any way you can see like it's just like this beautiful piece of art this mm-hmm. is it, you know just remember that we're constantly we are artists and we are creating and yeah i love that what was your first exposure to improv what uh, uh if you can remember it uh well in high school i had a really a cool and amazing um, high school drama teacher in a small town in New Jersey, and she had us do um, uh, Commedia dell'arte. So I think they were called Lazzi. Mm-hmm. I think a, a scene is a Lazzo, plural scene yeah, is Lazzi. So. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> per piacere. And uh, so she had us give, and I think the way those ran were we got kind of a general structure like you're the servant, you're the master, um, and somebody has to find the biscuit, or there's some like need for the scene and we would kind of improvise loosely within that structure um and that was the first sort of making the first concept i have of we didn't have a script and then i went to a thing called the governor's school for um <laughs> the arts okay i have such a terrible memory <laughs> you really did. <laughs> <laughs> i did not prepare um my but it it was like a you had to audition in the summer or addition during the year and in the summer it was like a kind of camp maybe a week or two at Trenton State College and it was like this awesome exposure to the arts so we had like uh, a couple of days of circus and juggling and pies in the face and then a couple of days of um, I don't know but I do remember doing improv in a way that was like you're you're a waitress but you're a black Labrador like we're going to sign you an animal and you're that too so I'm like oh I get how this kind of goes together like Mm -hmm. it felt natural and then when I was at Northwestern my freshman year I had seen this improv group our new student week so they had kind of like welcome to the school here's this here's this and last year's improv group the meow show performed and I was like what is this show like this is a whole thing and Rachel Hamilton was in that cast Mm. um who was in bummers and who's a teacher who was a teacher too and is such a lovely human being and I was like I want to be like her I want to do what this is so I auditioned, but I didn't know what the games were. And I just had a very fortunate experience. And it was a game called Party Quirks, which is basically um, a guessing game. So you get assigned something like you're made out of cheese or something. And someone has to guess. Do you, are you familiar with sure, that? Sure, Okay, yeah. yeah, okay. Um, probably my mom is by now, too. <laughs> Everyone knows Party Quirks. So I got that I was a contact lens. And then we were in a church. And I was like, oh. And I was like, my soul doth magnify the Lord. I was like, oh, I get, like... Luckily, I had gone to church growing up and had a lot of that reference. And I was like, I I just remember in that moment being like, I want to do this more and more and more and be great at this. I loved it. Yeah. And uh, then the second year when Ed and many other of my friends are, were in the uh, Meow show, Paul Valancourt was um, our director. And he was a grad student um, and had been at, in Maryland before that, I believe. And he knew a lot of... Um, uh, the improv world and it gave us a lot of we had really intense beautiful training and I remember reading Keith Johnstone's Impro and we did word at a time stories a lot and it was just this very we had the luxury of time and everyone was passionate about it it was such a cool time mm. um, I'm really you asked me about my first experience with improv and gave me like seven answers sorry no, no please please <laughs> go on yeah well it sounds like you connected with it pretty immediately there, I, I, it's interesting because, like, being given the suggestion of like you're a maid, but you're also a black Labrador. 
to me, I go into like a panic when I'm given suggestions like that because I think I start thinking too literally about Black Labrador and then my, my body kind of detaches. I don't know like what to do with it. But diving in with like a word at a time or a party quirks or just being told go. One of my favorite directions is go. Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah, sure. I'll go. And, uh, it, it, not having that time to second guess anything and you just kind of tap into, okay, I just have to execute this thing now. Yeah. It can be super liberating. Especially if you like to wait and get it right. Because yeah. I think that's a lot of my nature too, or just to wait to watch I mean, you learn so much teaching. I don't know if you've experienced it too, but I found I learned so much more teaching improv than I did learning. Mm-hmm. And as I watched students, I was like, oh, I wish I had been that student. Because I was a student who waited to go last every time because mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to look like a fool, which is a great way to be in an improv class. Like, I want to look cool. I'm going to wait and see how everyone else does this exercise, and then I'm going to do it well instead uh-huh. of being like, I'll try. And when I teach and someone's like, I'll go first. I don't know what this is. I'm like, you're going to be great. Like, you ha- you don't have that... That fear and ego bullshit of like I I don't want to look foolish and it's so weird to have that need and constantly be improvising like I I'm I'm just constantly trying to keep that in check of like nope I do want to look like a fool and I do want to make some mistakes in front of people that's interesting yeah that's and I'm surprised to hear that you would be the last one to go up because that's so counter to the way that you play or the way that I know you as a performer. Uh, you, you. You, uh, you've always been kind of the fearless one on stage. Well, th- well I think I had been doing it for a long time, luckily. Yeah. I think when I first started out, I was just so scared. And did you do improv before you came to the Magnet? I can't remember. Briefly, I, I, uh, I did classes at UCB for a little under a year mm-hmm. um, before Magnet opened. And then I was kind of uh, following Armando around for a while while he was teaching his indie classes. Um, so oh. I, I don't, maybe I'd been improvising for like a year and a half when Magnet first opened, but not a hell of a lot. I didn't have many shows under my belt. Um, uh, you seem like a very, and seemed like a very fearless person to me too. You did not seem like someone who was like, I'm going to wait and get this right. You just seem like, I, I'm open to trying. Like, I got that vibe from you a lot. Well, I think I took, thanks. I think I took that idea to heart that uh, if you're afraid to do it, go do it now. If you don't want to be first, go be first. It, just because it seemed um, kind of exciting. Yeah. You know, there, there's always like, uh, um, it, it's more of like, it's like, okay, so there's like a transitional state that you go through. It's kind of like, um, um, geez, what's a, it's not a long-winded way to say this. <laughs> I can't, it's too early in the morning to not think of a long-winded way to say it. Uh-huh. Basically, it's like, I'm sitting down, I'm comfortable. In a second, I'm going to be asked to do something else. And I'm in a panic about being asked to do it. And I'm in a panic about how I'm going to execute it. But the, I find that the transitional state from sitting and being comfortable to doing this thing is actually a lot worse than just being there doing that thing. And if you kind of sit mm-hmm. in that transitional state for too long, you, you turn doing that thing you're being asked to do into this like a nightmare, this agony that's impossible. So there's something kind of fun about like beating that nightmare to the punch by just like pushing yourself through that transitional state. That's a great way to say it. It does grow into a huge monster and it becomes less attainable and more and more perfect and makes you more and more, or makes me feel more and more flawed. And it is like, if you just jump in, you're like, oh, well, you know, whatever happens Whatever happens, it's already over. Yeah. yeah, that anticipation time is murder. Yeah, you you do an amazing show called Switchboard with Deb Downing and uh, Rebecca Sohn, 
Thank I don't know. You. I don't know if you guys still do it all together these days. We haven't in a couple years. Um, Deb has taken some time to, some time off time off, um, and uh, so she's living in New York. Rebecca's in Chicago, and I'm in California. So we ha- that's a little prohibitive. Rebecca and I have done some two person shows, but it's been. Uh, but it started 10 years ago. We did it for a long time. Yeah. And then yeah, we did some out here. We did the Magnet. You, yeah. you did. And uh, I remember seeing you guys at the Philly Improv Festival. I think the first Philly Improv Festival. Yeah, I remember that. Someone in LA was just talking about that show. That was a special show. We had yeah. a great... And it, that space was so cool. It was like almost a theater in the round. It was, or three quarters anyway. It was gigantic and uh, super cool. And you guys, you were, you were the highlight of the festival. I, uh, I remember that being like awesome. Thanks. But that, that's a show that, that, if you could talk about that for a second, because the way I remember it is just totally in the spirit of absolute freedom and 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 that's a, a particularly fearless show can you describe sure. how you, the the attitude behind it the idea behind sure. it sure well um there's a show called foursquare that's uh, uh originally uh was dan back at all john let's peter gross and rob janice mm-hmm. and that was in um chicago and they were uh, using organic transformation. So everything from within, there, there was no kind of wipe editing. It was just like taking a weird moment or take something, taking something that was heightened in the scene or even something subtle like, uh, uh, and they would just kind of hang in that weird moment and then transform it um, into another scene. And I had coached them a little bit. And then I remember Rebecca and Deb and I were like, this is, we were watching their show at IO like, we, I wish, I wish, I wish I could do the two. And they're like, well, we can. I don't remember exactly who said that first either. But then we started to do that show. And then uh, Dan coached us for a while, Dan Backadol, and Alex Fendrich also coached us. And I remember Alex incorporating music or did we? I don't have his, sorry, great memory. <laughs> I think, but I remember him pushing us to say like, attack it and don't be coy. Mm-hmm. Don't be... Um, don't wait for things to happen. Like you can even say, go sit, go sit here. You sit here and I'm going to do this and then start the scene. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, which is very childlike and lovely in a way too, of like, we are obviously making this up and I want this to start this way or something like you can, if you're feeling the impulse to do something, try to make that happen. And I, I, the way I'm saying it now sounds like it was a heavy handed, like telling people what to do, but it was more about not trying to make this like seem like magic, just being very transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dan was such a great influence in terms of, he's such an incredibly talented actor. And I mean, it's, it's, he's talented in both ways in a huge way. But the commitment he gives to every, I mean, he listens 100% with his whole body and his whole character. He's just very much involved and engaged in scenes. And I feel like that gave us a great grounding too of just like, we want to, you know, when someone coaches you who's great, you want to, shine for that but you don't want to be like I'm going to step up and, and be I want to you know be that way too I think that helped us create these strong characters and do things that were ugly or weird or angry instead of trying to be cute or funny mm-hmm. and then somehow the music element came so we would uh, break into songs sometimes during the show and I think that I've always loved musical improv I think it's the um, the ultimate like you really have to commit and you really have to support and um and sometimes the songs were like incredibly cool or we'd all be singing different words at the same time. Sometimes they were weird. to be like, hey, I'm going to throw this bread out. And someone would be like, bread. And like it wouldn't get musical. And it was kind of weird. But we were taking big swings and just like we're, you know. But eventually I knew working with those guys, it would, 
it would be in that same way, like there are no mistakes. Like, yeah. We would, it would continue to be supported until it was the, the bread musical. What I loved about that show was exactly that feeling that anything's possible. Anything can happen. And sometimes I, I like I said before, like I, I'm a little bit of a literal thinker and I can find myself getting trapped sometimes in, in the habit of thinking about scene work sort of in terms of dramatic structure or in terms of like movie scenes or something. I, I find myself mechanically trying to do sort of perfect scenes. Uh-huh. And, and, and th- there's a value to that that I would argue on another day on a different podcast. But there's also like a huge flaw in that, in, in that you start to limit yourself from more and more possibilities, which is sort of... Um, antithetical to improvising it's sort of the opposite of having that freedom of it's not just about imitating what makes a movie work or what makes a good tv show work or imitating what makes a play work it's its own special thing and ideally there's some kind of very specific magic in the room when when Mm -hmm. a group of really talented people who trust and love each other are improvising where you just don't know what's going to happen they're going to open a door to God knows where, and all this stuff is going to start coming out. And that's something you can't get in other formats, really. Yeah, and I think what you said speaks to me of like um, wanting to do it right or like wanting this to be a great structural scene or something. It is, it's very cerebral, and then it's that, it's, it's that unattainable, great, perfect scene instead of what's happening. And then I, for me, I uh, am more of an intuitive, I think... I've evolved into a more intuitive improviser where I sometimes can't remember the suggestion Mm -hmm. to that point where I think that's almost, you know, like selfish and not great where I'm like, tomato, blah, this happened, this happened. I'm, I'm reacting to this. And then I'm not taking care of the show. Mm -hmm. And like Tammy Sager, Craig Kukowski, these are people who are real geniuses at like, I am just as engaged in this amazing scene. And also I have a part of my brain that's like, this is the suggestion. This is where we are in the Mm -hmm. show. We need to draw that back. I remember that character. I'm not helpful in that way. Yeah. But, um, um, there's something about, I feel like, uh, the way I like to play and teach and stuff is more about being in my body, I guess, than being in my head. Because when I was a student at, I, uh, yeah, learning the game of the scene, I was like, stopped. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, the game and this is mathematical. And I did eventually get there, but then I was like, I say this, you better say this. And it mm-hmm. brought up all that anxiety and like wanting to do it right. And then when I felt like I was able to be free of that, I was like, oh, okay. And then you can be in that immediate moment with the audience too. And really responding to physical choices or weird sounds people make. And, um, there's something to that that's really true or honest to me that I really like. I I love the idea that the audience sees us improvising. They they see the mechanics of it. They see the gears. They know that we're making things up. And and that thing of being able to pull the curtain back and not pretend like we have this fourth wall and we're living this imaginary life in front of them, but we're we have the freedom to show them the the performer and the performance at the same time. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is um, you can be in a scene that is going to a really weird, funky place, and instead of sweating that it's not perfect or going well, mm-hmm. that funkiness can kind of lead you into 
uh, uh, talking directly to the audience or, or going into a song or, or doing whatever that eventually takes you back to this scene yeah. where you can sort of recover what, what otherwise might have been like a disaster and a boring show can end up being integrated into just this sort of amazing performance art. Yeah, I think when we, when we improvise a lot, like people who have been doing it for many years fall back into being comfortable and knowing, like, I perform with these people all the time. I know what they're going to say. I'm really, like, you, 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 or we stop working hard for it and being in that moment of discovery. And I definitely am aware, excuse me, in the audience. And I think even newbie audiences are aware of the difference between people who are like, I'm really good at this, and here's blah, 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 and that's funny. And people who are like, I don't know what's going to happen next. Like, I'm not doing the character I play every week. I'm not doing this kind of bag of tricks stuff. And when we're working that hard as improvisers, it's an incredibly exciting show. And that's why people go to see improv, hopefully. And I think that's why a lot of people are often disappointed. Like, I came to see improv, and it was okay. But I think we're still reticent often about taking a huge risk and not knowing what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like there's a leap when we first learn how to do it of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Blah, I'm going to try it. You know, and we realize people will catch you in that kind of trust fall way. But then I think there's this, this revel or revolving thing of like, well now I don't want to keep doing that instead of continuing to take that big risk. It's so thrilling when we see that happen. And I, when I coach or work with people who've been improvising a while, I, I like to try to remind them of that, of like, keep putting yourself in an uncomfortable position because we feel that it's exciting for you. Then we're really having discoveries instead of like, do that thing or here mm. comes that thing. or what, what, Yeah, what kind of uncomfortable positions do you encourage people to put themselves into? Like when you're coaching, what, what, what is your, this is probably too broad a question, but no. how, how do you try to lead people to a place where they can take risks? How, what, how, what, kind of, what do you mean when you talk about taking risks to I people? think I mean more of an emotional risk than doing something crazy or weird. I right. feel like some exercises I do are, are like, there's a, not a lot of talking. I do a lot of exercises that are like, you can only move your shoulder. I mean, they just sound, and they are frustrating for people. Like you can only move, uh, you guys have to interact only moving your shoulders. So they look at each other, one person shrugs their shoulder and the other person shrugs their shoulder weird and then they both start shrugging their shoulders at the same time. So that's not really a scene. And then it, it is sort of a metaphor of like, we can't just both go blah, 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 blah. Like I have to move my shoulder to you in a way that's saying like, get over here. Mm-hmm. And then you have the choice of being like, no, or like, I can't wait to get over there, whatever you're going to say back. And it's a reminder of like, this is a tennis game of like, I serve that to you, take it in and respond. But it makes people feel frustrated to not be able to talk yeah. because that's such a crutch. Or there's another exercise that's, I think it's a Viola Spolin one that Rebecca Sohn teaches when we do switchboard workshops, which is very similar to organic transformations where people stand in a circle and uh, one person starts in the middle and with no using no words, it's sort of like just sounds and they kind of create a character. So maybe it's just someone who's like, <laughs> and they have this sort of vocabulary of sounds and then they kind of walk around and greet everybody and then someone will kind of have a conversation with them. And it's, it's ooky and weird, especially when people are very comfortable with clever jokes or talking, mm-hmm. but they really 
have, they relate to somebody in a very pure way because they don't have their words. So they're really engaged with their eye contact, their body is engaged, and then they switch places and the person in the center has to transform. And this is the worst part, right? This is like the part where you're in the middle of a circle going like, uh-uh, like this is everyone's nightmare. Like this is gross theater stuff and it's ooky and embarrassing. But if you can kind of hang out there and transform that into and create this other character without just dumping the gift that that person gave you, like it's really building on that gift somebody gave you mm-hmm. and finding something new, you are really discovering something in the moment and you're it it reminds everybody that you have the power from like a weird gesture and sound to build everything you need um but it makes a lot of people uncomfortable sometimes mad (laughs) that's super interesting i i know a variation of that game is character in the space which is just a matching and transformation exercise Mm -hmm. but i don't think i've ever had it uh run where it's also a communication exercise where you're not just matching a person but you're you're in dialogue with them in this language that this extremely limited language of like ticks and mannerisms and stuff. That's a, a super cool way to think about that. I really like it because it is more engaging. I keep saying that word, but I don't know what else to sure. say. Like, yeah, yeah. because if, if someone's just going, wow, wow. And you look at somebody and you just go, wow, wow. You can kind of check out. Yeah. Like I'm just doing blah, 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 blah until it's my turn. And then you can start thinking ahead. But if you are, listening and responding you can't really plan ahead and that's more helpful for discovery i think two of my favorite classes i've ever gotten to be part of one was yours i don't remember the name of it thank you i don't remember the name of it um but one was yours and one was kevin dorf's class and they were pretty close to each other you had left new york uh uh, dorf came and taught a class and then you came back and you taught like a one-day workshop and i remember thinking in both of them it was a lot of what you're describing right now and thinking, like, the hell is this? The <laughs> I know people are like, are I want Second City. Like, yeah. But that's what Where's was so exciting about it to me was like, after the first 10 minutes of like, what? It, it then became of like, oh, we don't know what we're doing. And that's so exciting. And then it's just kind of stepping into, I don't know what this is supposed to be or where it's supposed to go. You just do it and you experience it. And that's what I like so much about it was it, it, it's, it, both of those classes to me were just about pure total experience. I don't know. Oh, what, that's a great way to say it. I like that. You know, it, it, yeah. like the the experience happens first, and then I can draw conclusions from it later on, as opposed to starting with here's a conclusion about improvising, and now we're going to work backwards to fit you to to be able to hit this ideal or do this thing. Mm-hmm. It, it I, I I really enjoyed the freedom of. I don't know what this is supposed to be. I don't know where it's supposed to go. I don't even know how I'm supposed to valuably incorporate this in what I'm doing. The only thing I know is the only thing to do right now is do it with these other people and see what happens. And that was like, I remember feeling kind of high for like a day afterwards. It's that very liberating feeling of like, holy shit, man, that this can be anything. It's so great. Yeah. And I think that's why I was talking about those college days that way too, because that was the first time I was doing those exercises. And I was like, this is why... I wanted to do theater stuff. Like I wanted to have that that high, that feeling of just like I just interacted with somebody in a very intimate, cool, thrilling, and creative way that yeah. doesn't happen walking on the streets or working in advertising or whatever else I thought I was going to do. Like this is makes me feel really, really alive. Um, and we have to also have the the structure like getting in our heads and all that other stuff too, so that we don't just lie around and say, going, you know, like that's gross. Yeah. But, um, but it's such, that's, that, I don't know. Yep. 
I just had a, I just hit the end of a, I fell off. Uh oh, <laughs> can't finish my set. Uh oh. <laughs> Okay, so let's back up a little bit. So uh, um, uh, going from Northwestern to kind of a more formal improv education, I.O. And, and, and hitting Second City, what was your experience like there going from that kind of, that, that freedom to, to be high and communicate in different ways with people to now learning the structure of things? What was that like for you? Well, first, when, when, um, when were you going through those, those schools? Who was around? Um... Well, when we went to I.O., well, when we were in college, um, Adrian Wenner and Ed Herbsman were both in this group, and they were both from Chicago, so they were like, you have to see Second City, you have to see I.O. Ed was already taking classes at I.O. They both had taken classes at Second City, I think, and I had never, I didn't know what these places were. And we, the first Second City show I saw, like, Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell were in the cast, mm-hmm. and was, it was incredible. And I was just like, what is this job? Now that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And at I.O., Sharna was so great to us because we were, we were a talented bunch of kids, and Ed was such a genius. And I, and I know she was just like, let's like pour water and sunshine on this. Bring mm-hmm. these guys down here. Let's. But we were also a little bit like, we've written eight shows, or you know, whatever we had done. We were so young, just like, we could probably run this theater. Like, I think we had this really arrogant um, attitude that wasn't so great, too. But it was... Because the guys I had worked with and Paul Valancourt too had trained at the Second City, we got a lot of we did a lot of those exercises. Um, and I owe, I guess, um, uh, we did like kind of Johnstone stuff and uh, Second City stuff. And then I owe, in terms of learning the game and the scene, like that was really hard. And I, I guess Sharna was my level one teacher. I don't know who my level two teacher was. Sorry. <laughs> I can't remember. Matt Besser was my level three teacher, and then Dell was my level four teacher. Dell Close. So it was in 1995, um, um, and I was really intimidated. Like one of the people, all my friends had already taken all the classes. So I, I remember one guy from our troop was in my class too, and that was so helpful to be like, "Well, this dude's here, so." I'm not too scared to do scenes with these grown-ups because yeah. I was like 22 and I'm like 26 is old. Like everybody <laughs> seems so old that lived in the city and stuff. And I just really, it was also a real kind of guy situation. All the teachers were men except for Sharna, but she wasn't a performer. So I just really had this feeling of like, I got to be tough and like mm-hmm. be like as funny as these guys. And I was really intimidated. And I was just telling someone a story last week who was talking about being really scared and being in their head. And I was like, oh, I did this freeze tag. We, we, were, we had a show that we opened, like the night we graduated from college, we actually had a show opening downtown. So all of our friends were like, graduation party. And we were like, we have a show in downtown Chicago. <laughs> so we went to do this improv show called Sue Your Ex, where we had someone in the audience like come up and tell a story about a bad breakup. And we played their lawyers and put them, the ex on trial. It was very elaborate and really fun. Um, oh no, I lost my train of thought again. So we did that show. Um, oh well, Lewis, I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> Keep, please feel free to associate. Uh, oh, I was talking about the classes. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I remember really getting the game of the scene. I remember especially with Matt in Matt Besser's class, like talking about like just tightening and tag outs and getting that kind of mathematically. And um, oh, this is what I was going to say. So I had, was responding to this kind of pressure of like deliver funny and get it. And so there were freeze tags at the end of the show. So we did our show in the theater. It was a Friday night and we got to play freeze tag with the other team. And 
um, there were there were like 108 people on the stage. Like everyone who played in that night was up, and it was a lot of pressure. Of like I want to get in the freeze tag, and I want to be funny in the freeze tag. And there were two people. There were three people in the scene, and there was one person in the middle. And uh, so two people were facing each other, and there was one per- person sort of in between them with their hands on their shoulders. I'm hoping I hope I'm describing this for your listeners in a way that they can picture it. So I tagged in to be the person in the middle. I was standing sort of aside from two people facing each other. And I had this very cerebral, I was like, so what I'm going to do is slow motion, like push them. We're going to have this slow motion scene where they crack heads. Like, I don't know why I thought that was funny or I don't know what was happening, but I was desperately scared and trying to be funny really hard. Mm. And these guys both trusted me and I pushed them and they cracked their heads together and fell on the floor. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, like it was a horrible, horrible moment. And Ed was on the back line. I remember he was like, freeze. And he tagged someone out, tagged me out and tagged one of the people on the floor out and then just pretended he was drunk at a party. And I was just like, what the fuck did I just do? I just hurt two people. Hmm. I didn't know one of them. I don't know if Paul Valancourt was one of the people, but I was just like, I, I, I just felt like, what did I do? Like I had superpowers and I used them for bad. Like I mm-hmm. had this opportunity mm-hmm. to do something great. And I just... Her, and I was, I took a break improvising after that for a while too. And I was also like going, I was depressed and I was scared and about living in the city and didn't know what I was doing for my life. So I think all of this pressure just came out in this horrible way. Yeah. So, but, and then I got back up a couple of years later and tried again. And I think, yeah, Ed and Paul were like, it's okay. Like that sucked. My head hurts or whatever, but like, it's okay. But I was like, oh no, like I'd killed somebody. I was like, this is, but it's, it's it was horrible for me to see people trust me that much and to know, like to not be able to trust myself. Like I did not take care of my partners. I was too worried about trying to be funny and I hurt people. I was in a scene one time with this guy who I didn't know. And he grabbed me by the beard and pulled me across the stage by my beard. Oh my God. And then after the show was over, he came up to me and, and apologized not for the beard thing. He was like, I don't think I was listening well enough in that show. Nope. (laughs) Yeah. We both know what this is about. It didn't even occur to him that, like, oh, it hurts to grab a man by his beard. That's really painful, and you shouldn't do it. Uh, But it was kind of so clear in that show that everything was being, like, blocked out by this, like, uh, like, uh, noise, this, like, snow. Yes, exactly. And it's just this thing of be funny, be funny, be funny, do the funny thing. And so you're in the middle of doing this thing that you don't even know what you're doing, just with this focus of, I got to make people laugh, I got to be funny, that you don't realize, like, you're hurting another person, you're physically hurting somebody. You just kind of, like, you're not in enough of a relaxed place to, to... to be in that moment. You're not in that moment. You're, yeah. you're, you're, you're in this projected future and it's almost like you're struggling to kind of like uh, uh, push this future out of you. You're trying to push the laugh that's going to happen in three minutes out of you. You know what I mean? Like, but and it will it. never happen with it. Yeah, yeah, you're undoing it all. It's yeah. horrible. Yeah. But I, I mean, oh, it's not... It's like but, strangling a... Pu- like I'm holding this puppy. Yeah. Like a, a grapes... Not grapes of wrath. Uh, 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 petting uh, rabbits. Uh, uh, mice and men. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> So what what brought you back uh, after taking that break after you kind of relaxed a little bit? Um wow. I just I think a friend of mine invited me to do a show that was uh very similar to can't think of the name of the show. Gravid Water. Not very similar to Gravid Water, but it was using text. It was we would memorize the first part of a scene but not learn the end of a, mm-hmm. a scene from an actual play. So mm-hmm. we would 
for the first time read a play, like you and I would read a scene from, say, a mammoth play, and we would learn pages one through three really, really well, and then we would improvise after it. So it's definitely not as fluid or, like, magical and lovely as Gravid Water, but... Um, uh, um, and everyone... Do, should I describe Gravid sure. Water? Gravid yeah. Water is where one person memorizes... A, a character, like half of a scene, their character's half of a scene, and the other person they're with improvises. So they deliver the true dialogue from that scene, and the other person creates a totally other half mm-hmm. of that scene. So it's so beautiful. Um, but that, I can't, I think when I stopped improvising, I was like, no, 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 I'm supposed to be an actor, actor. I'm going to do theater acting. Actually, I did do some plays then too. But then somebody kind of invited me back and I did I did love it I did love it and when also the people I was working with Ed and those guys all moved to California to Los Angeles my parents were getting divorced I got married to someone I was like worked with I didn't really know at a restaurant like I I was just kind of like woo I'm Mm -hmm. gonna just be this person go to clubs and do shrooms and I don't know I don't know what I was doing mm-hmm. I only did shrooms once I, I'm not I just tried to make that sound a little cooler than it, it was you did make it sound <laughs> like you were like a shroom aficionado yeah no no it didn't 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 sit well with you the one time no it was great yeah I just I'm not very anxious about drugs I also did a balloon of um what do you call it not helium nitrous I remember mm. being at this weird party because I worked at this restaurant downtown and everyone's like we go to this place called the shelter in Chicago and it was like open till 4 or 5 a.m. or something, and all the industry people who were in Chicago, that meant, like, we worked at bars, mm-hmm. went there after they got off work. And there were these club kids named, like, Bobby Pins, and he had, like, all these huge pants with pins on them and makeup and stuff. And I was like, this is who I am. Like, I could not have been further from who I was. But I was like, I'm going to get this balloon of nitrous and sit on the floor and be like, ooh. Um, that was, yeah. Then that marriage didn't work out either. That so. sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> I was a little lost. <laughs> I, uh, another thing I wanted to talk about that you are not afraid to be very personal on stage in, in your one person shows. I remember you did who cares a few years back at the magnet. I know you mm-hmm. did it at, at UCB, um, in LA too. Um, you, you talk a lot about stuff that's going on in your life and, and kind of like really intimate stuff. How important is that to you to get that out there for people or, 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 or well, I, I guess I don't know what I'm, I'm I'm trying to phrase a compliment as a question. Oh, Don't know the question thank you. I'm, I'm and saying. I feel like um, I go back and forth between feeling like you know that phrase oversharing comes up and like uh, when I did that show, I, I had just gotten divorced, and I think for me it was a way of processing um, hard times. I, I was having a hard time communicating with people in my own family or my ex-husband, or just processing where I was. So I think by writing that, it helped me kind of take a look at it or be able to find what's funny in it. But I remember there was a scene in that show where I had gone to, when I was married, I lived in Las Vegas and I had just gotten hired for Second City and we did a show at the Flamingo Hotel there. And coming back home, I had, like, my husband, like, it was we, it was just not, the relationship was not right. But he was like, let's have sex in the shower. And, like, it was not great. It was just, like, a weird, like, trying to like my I remember saying this like my clothes I was wearing jeans and my clothes were all wet and I was standing in the shower like this isn't like a shower I thought if you had sex in the shower it was really cool and like (laughs) sex but I was like I can't get my pants off and like but just both of us trying to like force this Mm -hmm. this we are married and this is how we should behave and that was something I was really I had never really shared something like that first person before but a lot of people were like oh I've had an experience like that and I was Mm -hmm. like oh there is something 
and my husband Brian Finkelstein, my current husband, this is going to work out. It's going really well. Mm-hmm. Like he does storytelling in the moth and stuff like that. And I see the need to. I, I need to hear other people's stories too. It was like, oh, that, that, that universal. I feel like it's the same way when you're improvising. The more specific you are, the more people can relate to you. Mm-hmm. And so. I've talked about miscarriages and stuff. I talked about that in the piece I did last night. That's something that's going on in my life right now. And um, sometimes I hope it's okay. I just hope it's not gross. Like there were family members in there and stuff last night. And I'm like, here, I'm going to talk about the first like white pubic hair I got and how that it feels weird as aging as a woman. Like, hi guys. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's just, is that weird? I don't know, but I feel compelled to do it or is that compulsive i don't know i hope it's okay i hope it's okay <laughs> there it's, it's always interesting to me because sometimes you see shows where people are being very personal and you walk away feeling uncomfortable and and yeah. you walk away feeling like you've it's almost like they're passing on their problems to you and now i have to like be weighed down by this other person's life problems and then other people will do shows where they'll be very intimate and very personal and it can be really heavy stuff and really upsetting stuff and even though you're moved and upset during the performance you walk away feeling lighter somehow you you walk away feeling like it it was almost like by this person's act of sharing something really true about themselves it's almost like um like a magnet that's sort of like pulling out my own shit inside and nice it, and it gets drop. it. Okay, Thank sorry. you. I, I got to do one. I got to do one in every podcast. That's a terrible time to interrupt you. I'm so no, sorry. No, no. You're talking about being pulled in engaged in a great way and I just It was a lame metaphor a and it was a good joke. It was a good joke. No, it was a lame sorry. metaphor and it no, deserves it was a to be cut down a little bit. No, no, it's okay. I know. But like there there's that there, there are those things where you see yourself in somebody else's story or you mm-hmm. see yourself in somebody else's performance and it it it, it I guess for me, it's partly a thing of like, there's validation there. There's a, there's a thing of like, oh, this thing that I, I, I kind of keep to myself and this thing about myself that I feel weird about or this thing that I'm embarrassed about or this thing that, that somehow is like a, I'm living my the life badly thing. or whatever. Yeah. When you realize that other people have it too, there's this validation of like, oh, maybe I'm not living my life badly. Maybe I'm just living my life. Maybe that's, that's life. That's those experiences and those thoughts and these contradictions. Oh, that's life. That's that, you know very much to Rachel Hamilton's piece from last night too. Of just oh, yeah. like I think it's kind of removing the judgment of like, am I supposed to be this or supposed to be this or this is what's happening now? So this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, like I'm having a hard time. And I'm supposed to have this hard time right now. It's okay. Not like, am I bad? The judgment that sh- that is just that shame. I, I it makes me so mad. Yeah, and I think that that. What you said reminded me of like this, why storytelling and improvisation are such great and old art forms because mm-hmm. it's it's immediate relating. Like we're, we, I mean, sometimes the suggestion is like butter dish, but sometimes the suggestion is like earthquake. We have this earthquake in the news or whatever. Like, how are we as a society? How does that affect us? Like, mm-hmm. are we? Is it resonating in our relationships or our fear of death or whatever? Like, we do need to to deal with these universal things in a way that's not just clicking online or, you know, we need to talk about them or see someone express themselves and relate. And, um, and storytelling is the same way. I think just shining a light on all that stuff is so powerful so that we don't all feel weird and wrong. Because I think when we really start feeling weird and wrong and weird and wrong and don't, then we isolate and then bad stuff happens. We either treat ourselves badly or treat other people badly yeah. when we feel like we're bad people instead of just like, this is what I do. Well, 
we're mammals, right? And and mm-hmm. and so much of that, like judgment and right and wrongness. I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually. It, we 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 imprint pack status with each other in our groups. You know, we there's top dog and there's bottom dog, and you're climbing and you're and we're constantly reinforcing where we are on the ladder of status with other people. And so guilt and shame and self-judgment are like internalizations uh, of this mechanism that are kind of keeping our status kind of correct in this very like mammal headspace. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something very like animal about it. But we're also human beings. We're also something kind of more than mammals uh, uh, with very rich, multidimensional inner lives. And, and you know what I mean? Like ambitions that allow us to transcend who we are at any given time. Mm-hmm. You can start putting studs in your pants and take mushrooms and you can be that person for, <laughs> for that period. And then, you, you know what I mean? Like we can be different people. We go through different phases. And it feels to me like a room of really good improvisers or a room of really good storytellers. It's almost like creating this free space where we step temporarily out of mammal thinking, out of this bullshit that we give ourselves to keep ourselves locked in of like, I'm a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. How now what are like, apes do right like they rub shit on things to mark their territory they throw shit at each other so whenever you're judging yourself it's interesting that it comes back in the language of like i'm a piece of shit because that's like so archaic it yeah it it means i'm lower than other people do they ever rub shit on themselves i don't know i'd have no idea Crazy people do right they do i mean like super unhealthy mental yeah my dad uh uh he's a retired nurse Ah. And before that, he was a, a lab technician, and you know, blah, blah, blah. he mm-hmm. told me a story about a patient that they had in the hospital one time who gave um, the, his doctor a wrapped present, and inside the box was his own shit. Oh no! But the rationale of this guy was, um, "There's nothing more personal that I have that I can give you. It's literally been through my body." So it, it was like his own weird token of like thanks to the doctor of like wow. you've done so much to help me this is like all I have to offer in return. It's pretty cracked logic. Yep. It destroys my argument from 10 seconds ago, but it's an interesting <laughs> story. That is what kind of paper and bow do you use? I don't know. But it, it, it so anyway, it, there's that thing of like releasing that tension, right? Releasing that that uh, um, that kind of like inner like dominance submission mm-hmm. thing. That when we don't have other people to make us feel submissive, we make ourselves feel submissive with judgment. And you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. releasing that is almost like giving free space for us to kind of like. I'm getting like really stupid here, but like Mm-mm, very smart, kind of like reboot ourselves in a way. It's like if we have the possibility mm-hmm. as people to to be many different people in our lifetime, um, we need these like little reboots where we experience kind of like psychological freedom for a moment where it's like, I'm okay. The shit that I'm experiencing is just part of my experience, but it's part of this larger folk story that everybody around me is sharing as well. We're okay. And when you mm-hmm. have that we're okay thing, it's almost like a little bit of a fresh start. Paul Sills talks about something like that in Something Wonderful right away. He talks about the free space of an improv theater and needing to give actors freedom so that they can create a free space to kind of reimagine their values and reimagine the, the people they want to be. That makes me think that I also say this when I teach sometimes too, like we can do anything we want in this blank space and we often 
pretend we're in relationships and bicker. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Right. Why, yeah. right. why aren't we making, like, we are still afraid. And I think that's true in life too. Like, as you were saying, like, we choose, like, I'm the status, I am this, this is my lot in life or whatever, and I have shame or whatever. Instead of saying, like, every day I can change. It's a lot of power we have. And I think it's almost too much. I think a lot of people are comfortable being victims of like, well, this is my lot in life. This is how I have to be. Instead of saying like, I can, and I've seen people in the middle of their life, start taking improv class. And like, this is blowing my mind and changing my life. I'm 48 and I'm going to do this. And I think that is such a thrill. I'd much rather have that student than somebody who's like 26. I already know a lot of it, you know, like, um, and I want to get this ambitious improv thing. Like someone who's, Changing their life that way obviously is more exciting. But you, um, you gave me a note one time in a level two class that no, 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 it was okay. a good note. It, it wasn't so much a note. You just kind of like said something nice about a scene that I was in. That I've been thinking about this recently too. Probably uh, uh, had had a really major effect on the way I've been improvising ever since. I, I don't remember wow. who I played it. I played a scene with this guy, and we were soldiers, and it was like the night before a battle. And we were kind of in our bunker, like polishing our guns and cleaning our guns and stuff like that. And the scene was just about, um, we were afraid. We, and, and we weren't saying it too much, but it was just clear of like, we were just afraid of what was going to happen and we were trying not to talk about it. And you, you after the scene was done, complimented us on not being snarky. I mean, you said, I, I really enjoyed that you guys weren't snarky about it. it you know, that it was just like, we were just afraid and that was the whole scene. And that like... Not only did that compliment make me feel really good, but I think that you gave me like a shot of maturity by saying that because that kind of resonated. And and ever since then, I've tried my best to not be a snarky, ironic improviser. I mean, I still am, but but I've tried my best to like, let's actually play this scene and let's play it as human beings and and not like go for like an easy, uh, uh, just like fighting about shit needlessly because that's what an improv scene is, is heightening a fight between people. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it can be anything. And, and if it means that it's a scene that's not particularly funny, but is free of snark, mm-hmm. that's good enough. You know, it's like, Oh shit. That was, ver- that was a very liberating Aww, thing to I'm hear. I'm so glad. It seems to me when you said that, it, ma- it makes me think of the word vulnerability, which is something I say a lot too. And I teach and try to do like, it's so much more powerful when you're, when you lead with that sort of vulnerable truth, I think everybody comes in when you are snarky i think the audience gets defensive too of like oh really yeah. now are you gonna make a mistake same with clever like yes. are you gonna trip up your lines but if someone's just like i don't know or i'm afraid or i mean everybody is on your side yeah and it's a very brave thing to do and it's beautiful and i think we forget to do that i'd much rather see people be that is a risk to be vulnerable it's a great big risk well it's also when you when you kind of are 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 acting in a way that's like, I'm going to make you laugh. You immediately condition an audience to go, okay, make me laugh. Yes. And then that's how they're watching it. it they're watching it more as, as um, uh, you know, you, it's like a rap battle or something. You know, you're like Eminem now. It's like you got to top it or, you, or we're booing you off the stage. Yeah. But if you yeah. just don't give people the opportunity to think of it in terms of, um, of make me laugh, they'll take a lot from you. And that's where it goes back to that like great thing of like, oh, you can do whatever you want. You can yeah. do whatever you want. You don't have to limit it to, to fighting or being snarky or complaining about stuff. I want, I want to go back for one second. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you had said at the, at the beginning of the conversation with um, uh, Bummers, when you guys first were putting Bummers together, mm-hmm. that you were kind of feeling 
like the light was going out a little bit. Uh-huh. And then you apologize for saying the light was going out a little bit. But I like the image of the light going out a little bit. Um, uh, you've been improvising and performing and writing for, for a long time now. That high that you got early on in, in Northwestern, that kind mm-hmm. of like freedom to get out there. Uh, um, uh, how do you feel like that has sort of changed? How do you feel like the form of the way that you create material and the way that you improvise has changed over time to keep that light on for you? Does that make sense or is that a shit no, question? No, 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 no. That's not a shit question at all. I guess I, another way is like, how has improvising and performing and writing changed for you from your 20s through 30s through 40s? You know, like how, how have you grown to... to to not feel dim, to not feel like you've exhausted what you have in you. Jeez, that's a- yeah, that's a great question. I, well, when I started, it was just like, what is this? What is, you know, this, ma- like, I'm just going to try everything and feel this, this, these great feelings and love these people. And then when I was in Chicago, like after the, the head cracking time and came back, then I really wanted to work at Second City. So I think there was an ambitious, like, I want this job and I want to do this to get to the top of that. And I eventually did when I was, I worked on the wrote and performed the main stage of second city and we did improv every night of the week, except Monday. And then I was like, uh, it's hard to still be inspired. I, I was like, I don't know what's beyond that. Um, and I did get a little burned out working with the same people all the time. And I was in a position where working at the second city, I was playing the straight man a lot to mm-hmm. a straight person, a lot to people who were like making huge, big choices. And I had that kind of like, Oh well, it must be nice to make big choices, and I was just jealous that mm-hmm. I wasn't doing that. And I was definitely also ushered gladly into this role of like you be this, you're great at this, so keep doing that. So I kept doing that. And when I moved here, I um, and did shows at the Magnet. I was like, this is so small. Like my first thought was like, I was used to doing shows for 300 people a night, and like didn't have to produce it. People just showed up, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I have to like reinvent what this is and I also had such great freedom I was like oh I'm not gonna be this straight person anymore I'm just gonna do whatever I want and that was a really fun time and that's when switchboard was really kind of blooming too and um I met new people I got to work with Ed who I had known you know way before that so like this arc of time and then I I reconnect with him and new people and then that yeah that was re-inspiring and I think now it, it goes in cycles sometimes too of just like I don't feel like I'm inspiring myself or I'm, I'm not making great choices but I just try to keep seeking out people who make I, I think it's in the people I choose to play with there's a lot of there are a lot of experienced people and a lot of shows to do but I don't want to be around people I don't that don't make me feel like that spark of that joy that's sounds very wise <laughs> <laughs> that reinvention thing that you're talking about too is also interesting it it, it that you, it's not, I, I think that like at different phases of your improv career or your comedy or your creative career, you kind of have like a, almost like a straight path laid out in front of you. And then the idea is I arrive at this destination and then somehow things are great. Yes. And, and that turns out to not be the case that it's actually more of you're constantly having to, to, reinvent and constantly having to reassess and constantly having to, it's like keeping your house clean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or, or eventually you're going to have to tear down this wall and extend this room and put this in and do that. And it, it's a lifelong process of having to figure out kind of where am I now? 
who do I want to be with now? What do I want this thing to look like now? And, and, and do the work all over again. So mm-hmm. that work that you're doing originally after that first burst of what is this? I don't know. This is great. That seems to just be the lifelong work of, of I guess doing anything creative, but certainly improvising or doing comedy. Um, one more question I want to ask. Sure. Going back to, to, to switchboard and, and, um, and your guys' philosophy with that, and in particular, going back to to that character in the space that Rebecca mm-hmm, Sohn plays. Mm-hmm. So, so in a workshop or in a class where you get to experience that kind of freedom of like, geez, this can be anything. How then do you, as a performer, make the leap to kind of take that freedom onto the stage with you, where where the context feels different? It, Mm-hmm. Your, your brain on stage once you become aware that you're responsible for for turning in some entertaining product to an audience different choices become filtered out different choices become highlighted there is you do have to focus a little bit on generating content that people are going to enjoy i know that that's kind of like a yeah. we have a responsibility to, to say, take care of the true. audience they just can't walk into weird wild nothing that you know yeah. they need to feel like this show is done by capable people totally. as well or else that's that's a mess yeah so how, how do you take the know. spirit of that freedom and 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 use it confidently and and still kind of apply like the 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 more logic uh, a game-based approach or or I, I don't you know i guess i don't really apply the game-based approach at all and i'm sure people who play with me are like i know <laughs> <laughs> um but i think Hopefully there's some instinct built on years of improvising that where I am helping the scene in the direction it needs to go in terms of heightening. Mm-hmm. I think where I find that sort of inspiration is in moments, like just in in those weird, if people are being really careful and just kind of go, like, like I want to hang in that moment. So I, I want, I guess I notice weird things or try to, Try to hang in a moment. If I feel like I'm trying to skate over something, you know, like if you trip and you try and pretend it didn't happen, like trip, trip, mm-hmm. and then I'll just be like, I'm now going to just fall down and see what happens. So I try to um, uh, surprise myself in a way, but not like I'm going to pull a frying pan out of a, you know, like weird things, surprise myself, but, but surprise myself by um, being okay, uh, not knowing or trying to find discovery and definitely physical stuff. Yeah. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can answer that or if I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, do you, when you're doing that, I'm really curious because be it, uh, it's the opposite of the way that I play. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm always like really curious about like what the experience is like to do it. Are you making conscious physical choices or are you just really just sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm, really pushing myself to like lead with an interesting mannerism right now or lead with my shoulder right now and just kind of see where it takes me. Like uh, it, yeah. That's the- I guess what I think, I don't know that anything I do is conscious when I improvise anymore. I think it's, mm. but I, I know that instead of words, like if I'm playing in a scene with you and I don't feel like I'm engaged or I feel like I'm thinking or something, I will probably try and heighten the scene in a way that is not verbal and just be like, mm-hmm, or just, and it's hard to explain oops, uh, uh, on a podcast, but like try to do something that's physically engaging or with eye contact or something that's a little weird that makes you engage with me too. Like, okay, aware, uh, let's get back together and mm-hmm. let's make sure we're, we're really connected mm-hmm. instead of just bullshit surface dialogue connected. Yeah. So 
Um, yeah, I think physical choices. Yeah, yeah, I think just heightening a physical. Like if I'm going to make a handshake, I'm like, why don't I just go ahead and make that handshake a little more heightened than I think I'm going to do it? Or like if I'm going to shrug my shoulders, just hold it a little longer. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I keep talking about shoulders. It's all in my book. It's a big topic today. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing uh, these days in Los Angeles? What shows are you doing? Um, there's a show called Soundtrack at UCB, and uh, we get music from the audience, which is just such a great gift because it lends itself to organic stuff and yeah. you, you can move around before this, the music goes away and start the scene that way so I, I really love that and we were doing a show called Quartet at I.O. but um, uh, that's on a hiatus as people are moving and busy and stuff like that so um, yeah that's what I'm doing and trying to work as an actress and do all those auditions and sometimes work and stuff yeah Uh this is already a few years back, but uh, the first time we saw you on The Office, it was really, oh. all my friends were at my apartment. It was a whole big deal. We were oh all... Oh, my God! Yeah, yeah, oh it was a real man. big deal. It was very exciting. That's so sweet. It wasn't too long after you had left New York. And yeah, that's really, why I was like, L.A., I'm moving here. Yeah. Yeah, it was a super cool thing. It was kind of like, uh, I think like every everybody in the room sort of felt like a sense of pride of like, all right, oh. man, rock and roll. That's really kind and sweet. That was a thrill. That was such a thrill yeah. and a surprise. And now looking back, I'm like, it is crazy that I got, now that I know what the status was or how much people are vying for, like, I want to get a guest star on that show. Like, it was amazing. Yeah. And I hadn't had any acting work when I lived in New York. And when I went out there, um, Allison Jones, who casts that show, had, had was familiar with me from the Second City and had, a friend of mine had introduced me to her, Sue Gillen, who's an amazing, genius, wonderful person. And so, so someone has said, just call Allison when you move to uh, L.A. and tell her you're there. And I was like, no, I'm not calling a casting director. And I'm not that I'm advocating everybody call casting directors, but I think that I just thought they were in castles, yeah. untouchable. And Allison is someone who is, when she's familiar with people, is open to, and no, nobody call her. Please don't, do not call her. I'm not saying that. Right. But yeah. um, at that moment in time she knew who I was and I was like hey I'm around if, and she was like I'll call you in and call me in that week and I almost cried at the audition because I was like I, I'm so grateful to just be here and I uh, <laughs> never have an audition so long she was like please relax <laughs> I mean, she didn't say that but it was like you're fine you're, you'll be okay to do this and then I got that job and I was just like what do I do I remember I, I MySpaced Scott Adsit because <laughs> it was a MySpace time and I was like, I don't know what to do. And he was like, a PA will call you, put their number in your phone. When you get there, this is what's going to happen. And then you, I mean, I didn't know where, how the, where the marks were. I hadn't worked. So I just kind of pretended I knew what was going on. I, and I'm probably, and it was totally intimidating, but everybody was extraordinarily nice. So it was just like a weird, wild dream. I don't think I slept for two days. And then I was like, I'm so tired. Like yeah. it was overwhelming. Pretending that you knew what was going on helped to get you through it. Yes, but I don't, I think that's a problem I have in my life where I'm like, I'll just, I'm good. Instead of saying, can someone tell me where I need to be right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. That's a very good thing to do. Yeah. I advocate for that. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it it's neat. Can they, neat or a shitty word? It's early, yeah, what, it's early what, in the morning, you know what I mean? Because like, <laughs> um, uh, you had an awesome scene in that first episode with Steve Carell. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, oh, like looking back, it's like the first time you went off to Second City, you see Steve Carell and yeah. Colbert on stage. And, and there's just kind of like a cool thing in the world that we inhabit where it's sort of whatever this magic thing is that, that we found in it, 
it is like passed from person to person. And like eventually if you stick around long enough in the world, you end up like, well, the people that you really look up to are the people that end up giving you, they, they pass, you know, it's like the way that yes. like a bishop lays hands on, on a, on another bishop to like, you know, the succession or whatever in the Catholic church. It's like a similar thing of like, Oh, improvisers become better improvisers by being among the heroes and among the people that they look up to. And then you just kind of receive some of the gifts of it. Up until recently, like the last couple of years, um, pretty much like the whole history of improv was still alive. Everybody was still alive. You know, it's only only like two or three years that like Paul Sills died and Mike Nichols recently passed away. But there's something so cool about like, oh, the whole mythology of improv it was like right there. Everybody's still there and yeah. still trading information and trading insights. To be, it, 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 there's something I find very special about that. That it's a it's a living, breathing art form. It's very cool. Yeah, there was the Second City had its 50th anniversary. Um, actually, I did a second episode of The Office right after that, and um, I don't think the cast remembered that I had done that other episode. <sighs> Even though uh, they were like. This character, like I was like, oh, my character has a name, Rachel Wallace, and everyone was like, I don't, we don't know. It's uh-huh. been, we're so busy. But so Steve Carell was at that 50th anniversary, and it was just so many people in that room. It was just like every ledge. It was just mind blowing. Um, and then when we were shooting that second scene, maybe it was two years later or something. It was um, a week after that anniversary, and I had seen him do this classic, incredible scene that I had seen when I was 18. And it's tricky to approach people, like even working with huge celebrities You, when you're, in, in my experience on a TV show, like um, you don't talk to them in between. Like they do not engage. I would not engage unless they do. And I know some people are like, I don't give a shit. Hey, what's up? You know, and mm-hmm. they'll probably end up being best friends with whomever. But like, I, I do not want to distract people because they have so much writing on their right. work and they're working. Right. But I did say to him, I'm like, Excuse, like it was a down moment in between, like we were turning around to get covered or whatever. And, um, he was not, he was sitting in a way that was like open, not just like looking down mm-hmm. or whatever. And I was like, excuse me, I'm sorry, but I just wanted to say like, I was just also at the 50th anniversary and you were, you're so amazing. And he was like, yeah, that was a great experience. And that's wonderful. And just kind of gave me a moment of like relating about it. And I was like, I'm in this club with you. Like, I just felt so thrilled. And, he just is one of those people who has an incredible, everyone who worked with him has nothing but great things to say about him. And it's, he, he was nothing but a wonderful and professional and so talented. And it's really great. I, I remember that even though taking classes at IO, when the teachers would be like, oh, they're just sitting at the bar and you can approach them and talk to them. I'm like, oh no, no, we can't. Like yeah. I had such a status thing and like, no, people are pretty generous. There's a philosophy, um, so Adrian Wenauer was one of the improvisers we went to college with, and he and his wife, Betsy Thomas, live in L.A., and they are incredible writers, producers, directors. They just do lots of great, amazing work. And they, I stayed with them when I lived in L.A. I stayed in their guest house, and they were so generous to me. And they both had said, like, there's, there's like a rope down or a rope up philosophy. Like some people are always throwing a rope up to get to the next thing, and some people are always throwing a rope down to help the next people up. And I was, I was like, oh, because I had that fear, too, of like, I don't want to give anyone else this knowledge I have because I want to mm-hmm. have success or whatever. And like, oh, there's enough for everybody. Mm-hmm. And it makes you stronger to help other people. And they they led by example that way. And they're in that it's they're part of that improv community. And it's such a beautiful practice to be like, I am accessible. I will talk to you about this. We both love this thing instead of like, you're a beginner kid, like mm-hmm. you wearing your shit. And then, you know, like, uh, yeah, 
I, I, I really enjoy that about the community. That was, um, I was lucky enough years ago to get to sit in with Tiny Spectacular a bunch of times. And that was always a really terrifying experience. Oh. Um, uh, but that was my takeaway from that show was, you know, I, I felt like I was a generation apart from everybody. And uh, uh, backstage, I have nothing to talk about with anybody. And then I'm up on stage with all of my teachers and all of the 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 big A-list people. <laughs> and I'm just a <laughs> shitty half-ass improviser. Right? You know, like, mm. and, and the big takeaway was just how generous and cool and awesome all of you guys were you made it really easy to do the show because it, there was just nobody ever acted like we were a kid. Everything was like, we're just doing our scenes. We're just playing with each other. And that was like, I don't know. It, that's it, great. That's, that's how you learn by transmission. And then that kind of enters into you a little bit and, and, and a little bit of time, you kind of, you keep the fire burning, you know what I mean? Like, you keep, yeah, like we're you all, keep we're going to be nice. We're going to take care of, People, we're gonna. I think on a superficial level, it's like it. It will work for the show well if we make you as a guest feel confident and good and welcome. Yeah. Like you're gonna play better if you're scared or like intimidated, and we feed that. It's gonna affect the show. Yeah. And people in the audience, whether or not they know, they're they're gonna feel like something's wrong, or we're worried for that guy. But if you feel great, it, it affects everybody. And I think hopefully improvisers off stage realize that too. Like in our life, if we work at making everyone else feel good, it's gonna. We're all gonna be better for it instead of like let the shit roll down you know <laughs> hopefully I just wanted to bring shit back into the conversation and get scatological again. we got it perfectly <laughs> in Jean Villapique thank you so much for talking this is <laughs> thank you Louis you're great and uh, thank you guys for listening <laughs> thank you for listening to the Magnet Theater Podcast which is produced by Evan Ford Barden and engineered by Grant Michael Goldberg with executive producer Ed Herbstman and is recorded at the Magnet Training Center in New York City we can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We sure do appreciate the support. Woo! You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. That's right. I said free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs>